Welcome to Monster Legends. I got another app. No, 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 no. I'm, I'm, I'm on the Skype app. Okay. Uh, hello and welcome. Tanner, and this is today is Monster Legends of Oklahoma. Today we have a special guest, Logan Swan. Hello, Logan. What's up, guys? How you doing, Logan? Doing pretty good. How about you? Doing pretty good. So you got a guitar back there. I won't even find. Oh, yeah. Well, I've, I haven't played it for a few years, but I, I used to. I used to take lessons. I was in fourth grade. Cool. Yeah, I I used to play guitar a lot. I was in play guitar and band. Cool. Yeah. It's a it's like one of those instruments where you like you have to practice every day, kind of thing. Yeah. So, so you were from you used to live in Oklahoma. Yes. What can you tell us about that? Well. Pretty interesting. It's really cool how he lived there two times because, you know, yeah. uh, I liked all the wildlife because I usually on on the second time I there I used to get out and explore a lot because it's kind of like how that and you know what I'm saying. Yeah. What kind of wildlife is in Oklahoma? Let's see. We ha- we have bison. Of course, I talked to you about I talked to you about that on our last interview. And bison. Yeah, we have some longhorn at the wildlife refuge that we used to go there a lot. Um, nice. And we and oh, oh sorry, I think I lost you. And of course, a long long time ago, there used to be wolves there, but the hunters killed them all. Yeah, that's the that's the thing about. Like well, well, um, they would like kill the bison and livestock, and I think yeah. people. There's a big history about wolves and not being wanted by people. Yeah, I see. So, a little history on Oklahoma. Yeah. Uh huh. Is a uh, part of the Louisiana Purchase. Oh yeah, the Louisiana Purchase, yeah, eighteen oh three. I forget like the deal. It's like it's like, it's like a dollar. It was a pretty good deal. 
overall. Because you know, back then money was so little. Like if you if you found a nickel, you thought you'd be rich. Yeah, I think like back then it's like ten thousand dollars, like a million dollars now. Yes. Back then, a hundred dollars was like a two thousand or somewhere out there. Um, the land that make today that makes up Oklahoma was added to the United States as part of the Louisiana Purchase of eighteen o three. Like you said, yep. uh, throughout the 19th century, the U.S. government relocated Indian tribes from the southeastern United States to that area. The Trail of Tears. That was during Andrew Jackson's time. Oh, yeah, the Trail uh, of Tears. Yeah. Over 30 Indian tribes have been moved to what originally called the Indian Territories. At the same time, ranchers in Texas began to move into the area in search of new pasture lands. And I think this is time where their um like bob wire investing stuff was happening around the time it was being invented. Or maybe before that. Yes, and there. I think refrigeration was invented in like the eighteen forties. Even high, maybe even higher. Yeah, eighteen forties. We have a a lot of Irish immigration coming on at the time. And because of uh, the industrial age is about to be booming with the uh, factories and stuff happening in up north. And of course there's a big civil war in the 60s. Uh, at the same time, ranchers in Texas began to build an area in search of new pasture lands. And the government eventually opened the land to settlement crane land runs in which settlers were allowed to cross the border at a particular hour to claim homesteads. Yeah, uh, homesteads, they were um, like a thing from the government. Like if you work your uh, air, like a piece of land for like so many years and you're like contributed to the land, to the area, they will like give you the land for free pretty much. Let's go to the Homestead Act. I mean, here in Tennessee, there's a lot of that. Uh, sellers who broke the law and crossed the border sooner than allowed were called Sooners, which eventually became the state's nickname. Oklahoma became the 46th state in 1907. Well, that's a long time. Yep. Well, so over 100 years before it became a state. That's crazy. Mm-hmm. Uh, following several acts that incorporated more and more Indian tribal land to U.S. territory. After its inclusion in the Union, Oklahoma became a center for oil production, with much of its state's early growth coming from that industry. During the 1930s, Oklahoma suffered from droughts and high winds, which uh, I think in 19, early 1900, there was a great dust bowl, and like it destroyed much crops and everything. Probably contributed mm-hmm. to the Great Depression because yeah. I think there were. And I believe. What? I believe the dust bowl. The dust bowl. I did some research, and that was caused by overplowing. Yeah. Because you know how big of a deal that was back in then. Yeah, and I, and I think they had like they weren't very really up to date on irrigation method on how to irrigate properly. So everything was like dry and everything. A lot of people like had like a bunch of lung problems because of the dust, like a lot of um, tuberculosis and stuff. 
Yes. Uh, like the fall in the Great Depression. Great Depression. Oh God, what happened there? I think the bank, like, messed. I don't know. I'm not entirely 100% unsure, like, how the Great Depression happened. I did a, I did a test on that one time in social, in social history. Texas history is what I took in, way back whenever school was a thing before all this COVID-19 stuff hit, you know? Yeah. Uh, I think like uh, like one day like like the like banks or or stock market is like crashed. Everybody yes, the like, stock stock market crashed. Not, but I'm not like a expert in economics or anything, so I don't know like how it, it led up to that. The state motto for Oklahoma is "Labor Omnia Vincit." Uh, labor conquers all things. It's a state tree. It's the red bud. State flower is the Oklahoma rose. State bird is a scissor-tailed flycatcher. We all know real life can suck sometimes, and your boss accidentally seeing you in your underpants on Zoom last week doesn't help any. That's why Reluctantly Codependent Sisters, the Shira and Rashalia, keep you enthralled and in stitches every week with their podcast, Legendary Africa. Every Monday and Friday, we take you on a journey of mythical lands, magical objects, and monstrous creatures, both ancient and modern. Find Legendary Africa on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and wherever you feed your ears. And remember, stay safe, stay sexy, and stay legendary. Like I said, in 1830, Congress passed the Indian Removal Act, which forced the Eastern Woodland Indian tribes off their homelands into Indian Territory, which is now the state of Oklahoma. By 1840, nearly 100,000 Indians had been evicted and close to 15,000 had died of disease, exposure to elements, or malnutrition along the journey, which became known as the Trail of Tears. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In 1905, representatives from the Cherokee, Seminole, Creek, Chokta, and Chickasaw nations, known as the Five Civilized Tribes, submitted a constitution for a separate Indian state be called Sagawaya, although a large majority of voters supported the petition in the November election, Congress refused to November 16, 1907, Indian Oklahoma territories were combined to form the state of Oklahoma. Wow. Uh, during the course of the day on June 8, 1974, Oklahoma City was struck by five different tornadoes. Between 1890 and 2011, the city, which is located near the heart of Tornado Alley, was hit by a total of 147 tornadoes. Jeez. Bad day. Yep. What's your mind, Logan? What's, What's that? What's on your mind, Logan? What's going on with you? Oh, nothing. Oh, I'm just sitting here listening. I'm just still kind of thinking about if, like I said in our last interview, um, 
on our last interview, there was, um, hopefully there'll someday be a show called, like, Legend Hunters or something. That'd be cool. Yeah, I'll have to watch that. Like, um, I don't know. We're talking about, um, like a show where, uh, people or person would go around and stuff, like they did for Bigfoot Hunter. Oh, yeah, Bigfoot Hunters, yeah. Honestly, I think the Bigfoot case is finally coming to, to an end on figuring it out, you know, because they've been doing it since, like, the late 1800s. Because apparently it got started because they'd find these giant footprints everywhere. And they'd find them in the snow, which is how the Yeti legend got started. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, uh, what's your opinion on Sasquatch? Well, opinion, I think that it's... um. I kind of believe what most people believe in is an undiscovered hybrid species of ape. Probably like probably like from the giant Pipicus and stuff like that. Like, are you, are you an expert on prehistoric animals? Like the giant Pipicus, ground sloth? Uh, oh, I'm not expert, but I know about them. It, it's, yeah, giant Pipicus, I think they were... I don't know, but it makes more sense to be like a descendant from the giant um, Pegasus. I can't, say, I can't talk. And um, <laughs> then, then a giant crown sloth because of the tracks. Yes. I think the giant crown sloth was more in like in the South America. Yes. Ooh. Speaking of cryptids, the Oklahoma octopus is a mysterious creature generally said to inhabit three lakes in Oklahoma, Lake Thunderbird, Lake Ugla, and Lake Tenkiller, where it attacks and kills unsuspecting swimmers. According to legend and rumor, this freshwater demon measures the size of a horse and resembles an octopus with long tentacles and leathery reddish-brown skin. That is... Ooh. Sketches question how an octopus, an ocean creature, could survive in freshwater lakes, but it is easily to believe that such a creature would be a fearsome predator. The giant Pacific octopus, for example, has tentacles that each boast the strength of a 200-pound man and a powerful beak that he uses to kill prey. Although no physical evidence exists in the case of the Oklahoma octopus, many point to high mortality rate and large number of unexplained drownings in Oklahoma lakes as a clear sign of its presence. There was, have also been numerous reported sightings. Cryptozoologists have pointed out that species of jellyfish have been able to adapt from saltwater to freshwater conditions. And the same adaptation may have been possible for a giant psilopod trapped in an inland lake when coastal waters receded. I'm thinking there's a giant octopus in Oklahoma. Crazy. Honestly, it'd be pretty cool because... Because maybe if, if they caught something similar to it, maybe it might be just a mutated species of octopus. If it attacks swimmers and it's probably thinking it's threatened or something. Maybe. Uh, I don't know if it's like octopus grow, keep growing like snakes do. Mm-hmm. They have they have enough food. And it's not crazy to think of a first like a freshwater octopus because there's like freshwater. Stingrays and like, no trout can like live in both salt and seawater. 
Salmon. Mm-hmm. You ever heard of uh, Elmer J. McCurdy? Elmer J. McCurdy. I believe not. Uh, Elmer J. McCurdy, born January 1st, 1880, and died on September 7th, 1911, was an American bank and train robber. Oof. After robbing a caddy train in Oklahoma in October 1911. Dubbed the bandit who wouldn't give up, his modified body was first put on display at Oklahoma Funeral Home, then became a fixture of the traveling carnival and sideshow circuit during the 1920s through the 1960s. After changing ownership several times, McCurry's remains eventually wound up at the Pike Museum zone in Long Beach, California or they were discovered by a film crew and possibly identified in December 1976. Okay. So McCurdy was born in Washington, Maine on January 1st, 1880. He was the son of a 17-year-old Sadie McCurdy, who was unmarried at the time of his birth. Uh, the identity of McCurdy's father is unknown. One possibility is Sadie's cousin, Charles Smith, McCurdy would later use the name Charles Smith as an alias. In order to save Sadie's embarrassment and shame of raising an illegitimate child, her brother George and his wife Helen adopted Elmer. After George died of tuberculosis in 1890, Sadie and Helen moved with Elmer to Bangor, Maine. Sadie eventually told her son that she, not Helen, was his mother, and she was unsure who his biological father was. The news disturbed McCurdy who grew resentful and became unruly and rebellious. As a teenager, he became drinking heavily, a habit he would continue throughout his life. McCurdy eventually returned to Maine to live with his grandfather and became an apprentice plumber. He probably was a competent worker and lived comfortably until the comic downturn in 1898. Uh, what do you think was the... That was around the time of the Dust Bowl, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, cost my overplowing because they haven't been taught the correct farming methods. Uh, McCurdy lost his job in August 1900. His mother died of ruptured, of a ruptured ulcer. Shortly after his grandfather's death, McCurdy left Maine and began dressing around the eastern United States, where he worked as a lead miner and plumber. He was unable to hold a job for an extended period due to, to his alcoholism. He eventually made his way to Kansas, where he worked as a plumber in Cherryville. McCurry then moved to uh, Iowa, where he, in 1905, was arrested for public intoxication. He then relocated to Webb City, Missouri. In 1907, McCurry joined the United States Army, signed to Fort Leavensworth. McCurdy was a machine gun operator and was trained to use nitroglycerin for demolition purposes. The extent of his training was likely minimal. He was armedly discharged from the Quartermaster Corps on November 7, 1910. McCurdy then made his way to St. Joseph, Kansas, where he met with his Army friend. On November 19th, McCurdy and his friends were arrested for possessing burglary paraphernalia, chisels, hacksaws, funnels, or nitroglycerin, and gun. St. Joseph Gazette reported that during their arrangement, McCurdy and his friends told the judge the tools were not intended for not for burglary purposes, but were tools they needed to work on a foot-operated machine gun they were inventing. In January 1911, a jury found McCurdy not guilty. After his release from county jail, McCurdy's short-lived career as a bank and train robber began. His robberies were generally 
bungled affairs due to McCurry's aptitude. McCurry decided to incorporate his training and natural goodness into his robberies. This often caused a problem as he was overzealous and failed to quickly determine the proper amount to use. By March 1911, McCurry had been again reclaimed to Lenape, Oklahoma, and he had then and three other men decided to rob the Iron Mountain, Missouri Pacific train after McCurdy heard that one of his cars contained a safe with four stopped the train and located the safe. McCurdy then put nitroglycerin on the safe's door to open it, but used too much. The safe was destroyed in the blast, as was the majority of the money. That's funny. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Do you have to collect anything? What do you mean? Oh, I dodge collect anything? Yeah, like, do you, like, collect anything? Uh, I like, uh, like, airheads and stuff. Airheads? Yeah. Cool. Do you like, do you like to collect, collect anything? I collect knives. That's cool. Yeah, here's one that a, a man gave me one time. Oh, that's cool. Mm, so. Oh, nice. Ever ever find like any like really old knives? Oh, I just kind of old knives. I kind of think that they're interesting if they're from a certain time period, like you know. Yeah. All right, nice. I got knives. Oh, do you have any? Here. Uh, I gave me a sword. Oh, cool. <laughs> So, how interesting. Yeah, my friend gave it to me. Or, most of decoration. I don't know. can't really carry it around. Yeah. Kind of awkward. It would be, because then the man would look out the window and he'd be like, um, Officer, um, there's this man outside of my house with a sword right now. Yeah. Uh, McCurdy and his parents managed to net $450 in silver coins, most of which were melted and fused to safe frame. In September 1911, McCurdy and two other men robbed a citizen's um, bank in Chattaqua, Kansas. After spending two hours breaking through the bank wall with a hammer, McCurdy placed a nitroglycerin charge around the, door, the bank's outbolt. A blast blew the vault door through the bank, destroying the interior, but did not change the safe inside the vault. were opened with nitroglycerin, but the charge failed to ignite. After the lookout man got scared and ran off, McCurdy and his accomplice stole about $150 in coins. Uh, they were in a tray outside the safe and fled. Later that night, the man hopped the train, which took them to Kansas border. It split up, and McCurdy made his way to the ranch of a friend, Charlie Reverend, near Bartsville, Oklahoma. He stayed in a hay shed on the property for the next few weeks and drank heavily. McCurdy's final robbery took place on October 4, 1911. McCurdy and two accomplices planned a robbery, planned to rob a caddy train. After hearing it obtained $400,000 in cash, it was intended as royalty payment to the Osage Nation. However, the McCurdy and the man mistakenly stopped a passenger train instead. 
The men were able to steal only four six dollars from the mail clerk, two demijohns of whiskey, and an automatic revolver, a coat, and a trained doctor's watch. A newspaper account of the robbery later called it one of the smallest in the history of train robbery. McCurdy was appointed by the hall and returned to Reverend's Ranch on October 6, where he began drinking the demijohns of whiskey he stole. By this time, he was also ill with tuberculosis, which he developed after working in mines, a mild case of pneumonia and trichinosis. Man, he's not doing good at all. Jeez. So much disease. Yeah. Like, uh, only thought antibiotics were very prevalent during this time. Or, yeah, this drinking doesn't help either. He set up drinking with some of the ranch hands before going to sleep in the hayloft the following morning. Obnilson and Curry, he had been implicated in a In the early morning hours of October 7th, a posse of three sheriffs. Brothers Bob and Stringer Benton and they surrounded the hay shed and waited for daylight. In an interview featured in the October 8, 1911 edition of the Delhi Examiner, Sheriff Bob Benton recalled, It began just about 7 o'clock. We were standing around waiting for him to come out. The first shot was fired at me. It missed me, and then he turned his attention to my brother, Stringer Benton. Shot three times at Stringer. And when brother got undercover, he turned his attention to Dick Wallace. He kept shooting at all of us for about an hour. We fired back every time we could. We did not know who killed him. On a trail, we found one of the jugs of whiskey, which was taken from the train. It was empty. He was pretty drunk when he rode up to the ranch last night. McCurdy was killed by a single gunshot wound to his chest, which he sustained while lying down. McCurdy's body was subsequently taken to the Undertaker in Pasco, Oklahoma, where it went unclaimed. Joseph L. Johnson, the owner and Undertaker, embalmed the body with an arsenic-based preservative, which is typically used in embalming, an era to preserve a body for a long period. When no next of kin were known, he then shaved the face, dressed the body in a suit, and stored it in the back of the funeral home. As McCurry laid unclaimed, Jason refused to bury or release the body until he was paid for his services. Johnson then decided to exhibit McCurdy to make money. He dressed the corpse in street clothes, placed a rifle in the hands, and stood it up on the corner of the funeral home. For, for a nickel, Johnson allowed visitors to see the bandit who wouldn't give up. At various times, McCurry was also called, was also called the mystery man of many aliases. The Oklahoma outlaw and the bald bandit. The bandit became a popular attraction at the funeral home and drew the attention of carnival promoters. Johnson received numerous offers to sell McCurry's corpse but refused. On October 6, 1916, a man calling himself Aver contacted Joseph Curry's lawless brother from California. Aver had already contacted the Osage County, Oklahoma sheriff and a local attorney to get permission to take custody of the body and ship it to San Francisco for a proper burial. The following day, Averill arrived at Johnson Funeral Home. Another man called himself Wayne, also claimed to be McCurry's brother. Johnson released the body to the man who put the on train ostensibly to San Francisco. It was then uh, 
trip to Arkansas City, Kansas. The man who claimed to be McCurdy's almost brothers were, in fact, James and Charles Patterson. James Patterson was the owner of the great Patterson Carmel shows, A Traveling Carmel. After learning from his brothers, Charles got the popular bald bandit exhibit. A two conducted a scheme to take possession of the body in order to feature in Patterson's carnival. McCurdy's cor- corpse uh, will be tra- featured in Patterson's traveling carnival as the outlaw who would never be captured alive. Until 1922, Patterson sold his operation to Louis Sonny. Uh, Louis Sonny used uh, McCurdy's corpse in the traveling museum of crime. Uh, Recording. Recording, right? Yes. Oh, we're recording, damn it. We're recording, yeah. Never mind. Thought we were recording for a second. So, what's got into cryptids? That's probably either. What's one of my favorite cryptics? What got got you into cryptids? Oh, cryptics? Well, way back whenever we moved in with my great grandpa, way back in 2016, he has a lot of acres on his house. And whenever the man was installing our cable, it was like a cloudy day. And I also decided, come on, guys, let's go look for Bigfoot. And then I asked my. Then I asked my mom if we could turn on Finding Bigfoot and then and so on. That's whenever I just started discovering other legends and stuff like that. And then which brings us to here. And that's kind of what got me into them. Nice. You know? Well, when did you first hear, what was your first, um, when did you first hear about Bigfoot? Oh, jeez. Probably whenever I was in kindergarten. That's whenever I first heard the legend of Bigfoot. You ever, oh, you ever seen Harry and the Harrisons? Harry and the Harrisons, I have not. <laughs> oh, it's good. Probably one, like, one of the best Bigfoot movies. Or on the... You, you ever see Bigfoot? Are you all looking for him? I have not. But honestly, I think it'd be, pre- I think it'd be pretty interesting if you had a a, a legend close encounter. Yeah, definitely. What would you, what would you do if you seen Bigfoot? I would probably, probably my first thoughts would be like, oh my gosh, it actually exists, you know? Yeah. Kind of like if I saw the Goat Man or someone like that, I'd just be like, oh my goodness, it actually exists. Uh, Louis Sonny used McCurry's corpse in his traveling museum of crime, which featured replicas of famous outlaws such as Bill Doolin and Jesse James. In 1928, the corpse was part of the official sideshow that occupied the Transamerica foot race. In 1933, it was acquired for a time by director Dwayne Esper. Spurt was inspiration film Narcotic. Corpse was placed in the lobby of theaters as a deep dead goat fiend, whom Esper claimed he had killed himself while 
surrounded by police after he had robbed a drugstore to support his habit. By the time Esper acquired McCurry's body, it had become mummified. The skin had become hard and shriveled and caused deterioration was proof of the supposed dope fiend's drug abuse. After Louis Sonny died in 1949, the corpse was placed in a storage in Los Angeles warehouse. In 1964, Sonny's son, Dan, led the corpse to filmmaker David F. Freeman, who eventually became a, made a brief appearance in Freeman's 1967 film, She Freak. In 1968, Dan Sonny sold the body, along with other wax speakers, for $10,000 to Spoonie Singh, the owner of the Hollywood Max Museum. Singh had brought the figures for two Canadian men who exhibited them at a show at Mount Rushmore. While being exhibited there, the corpse sustained some damage in a windstorm. The tip of the ear, uh, along with fingers and toes, were blown off. Man eventually returned the corpse back to Sin, who decided that it looked too gruesome, not lifelike enough to exhibit. Sin then sold it to Ed Lirsch, part owner of the Pike and the Museum Zone in Long Beach, California. By 1976, McCurry's corpse was hanging in the lab in the dark funhouse exhibit at the Pike. And on December 8, 1976, the production crew of a television show, a $6 million man were filming scenes for the Carnival of Spies episode at the Pike. During the shoot, a prop man moved what was thought to be a wax mannequin that was hanging from a gallows. When a mannequin's arm broke off, a human bone and muscle tissue was visible. Police were called, and the modified corpse was taken to the Los Angeles coroner's office. On December 9th, Dr. Joseph Choi conducted an autopsy and determined that the body was that of a human male that died of a gunshot wound to the chest. The body was completely petrified, covered in wax, and had been covered with layers of phosphorus paint. It weighed approximately 50 pounds and was 63 inches in height. Some hair was still visible on the side and back of the head, while the ears, big toes, and fingers were missing. Examination also revealed incisions from its original autopsy and embalming. Tests conducted on a tissue, which was a component of embalming fluid until the late 1920s. Tests also revealed tuberculosis in the lungs, which McCree had developed while working as a minor, blah, 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 unions, scars that McCree was document, documented to have had. While the bullet that caused the fell wound was presumably removed during the original autopsy, the bullet jacket was found. It was determined to be a gas check, which was first used in 1905 until 1940. These clues helped investigators pinpoint the air in which the man had been killed. Further clues to the man's identity were found when the magnum bullet was removed for dental analysis. Inside the mouth was a 1924 penny and ticket stubs to 140 West Pike Sideshow and Louis Sonny's Museum of Crime. The investigators conducted Dan Sonny confirmed the body was Elmer McCurdy. Forensic anthropologist Dr. Clyde Snow was then called in to make a positive identification. Dr. Snow took radiographs of the skull and placed them over a photo of McCurdy taken at the time of his death, a process called superimposition. Stone was able to determine that skull was that of Elmer McCurdy. By December 11th, the story of McCurdy's journey had been featured in newspapers and on television and in radio. Several funeral homes, also called the coroner's office, offered to bury McCurdy free of charge. But officials said to wait to see if any living relatives would come forward to claim the body. Fred Oz, who represented the Indian Territory Posse of Oklahoma Westerners, eventually 
convinced Dr. Thomas Nocky, a chief medical examiner coroner for the county of Los Angeles, to allow him to bury a body in Oklahoma. After further testing to ensure proper identification, Olds was allowed to take custody of the body. On April 22, 1977, a procession was conducted to transport McCarty to Boots Hill, section of the Summit View Cemetery in Guthrie, Oklahoma. A graveside service attended approximately 300 people was conducted after which McCurdy was buried next to his outlaw, Bill Doolin, to ensure that McCurdy's body was not boosted on two feet of concrete were poured over the casting. So there was a there was a uh, Oklahoma there was a mummy in Oklahoma. That's what the story is about. Pretty crazy. What do you think about uh, what are your thoughts on that? It's pretty interesting. Yeah. So you like the uh, just saying you like the Wendigo. Or mm-hmm. what do you like? What do you like about the what was Tom? For those who don't know, what's the wind? What is the Wendigo? Well, it's kind of like this deer, bear, wolf creature, like all three mixed. It's kind of like that, but it has no chest. It you just can see its ribs right there. If you want to do some research, you might it might show you some. Like kind of like you'll see what I'm talking about. Yes. Wait. You want to share your? If you want to share your screen. I'm gonna see. It's a green. They're described as giants. They're many times not human beings. There's an answer for miss another outcome. It's uh, from Native American folklore, from my research, and they don't like talking about it a lot. Or... Yeah. The... Oh, cryptid. The, the um, when did go? Mhm. Why is it your favorite cryptid? Um, my favorite cryptic, I have to say, to come to mind, I say it's the goat man. Goat oh, man. Mhm. It's a very like a half man, half goat creature. Like, yes. Here's an axe. You were saying it was part of an experiment that gone wrong. Right? Yes, yeah, all that. What was this? Uh, what was this experiment? What was it about? Well, he was using goats, and it it didn't really say beyond that, and I. Yeah, uh, likes attacking, Shane likes to attack cars, 
slashing tires. Yep. Found in Texas, Kentucky, Maryland. Very much like a a fenner, like the from Mm -hmm. Greek mythology. What do we call it? Greek mythology? Yeah. Uh, something strange is a foot in Beaver Dunes Park, located in the panhandle of Oklahoma. Dunes are home to a legend involving the Spanish explorer Corando. Mysterious late night military expeditions, money and black encounters, and enough mysterious disappearance to warrant the nickname Oklahoma's Bermuda Triangle. The story goes that Francisco. As he traversed the town area on his quest to discover new world in order warrants of his Native American guides to help keep away from the dunes. The price he paid was to have three members of this exhibition suddenly banished before his eyes amidst strange flashes of green lightning. A description Grondo installed panned in his exhibition diary, calling the mom work of the devil. Known by the natives as the shaman's portal, there has been blamed for numerous such alleged disappearances. Although none have been verified, especially in the last century or so, however, locals acclaim the witnesses' mysterious military expeditions conducted under the cover of darkness. In the 90s, uh, after receiving reports of unspecified strange findings from Oklahoma State University archaeologists, one Dr. Mark Thatcher is said to have spent three years studying the air until he was shut down by men with the military credentials. A fiction of the notorious Men in Black. It's unclear whether Thatcher was part of a, another unified university geological team who is said to have studied there in the mid 90s. The team uh, supposedly took a number of geological samples and found strange anomalies that included ionized soil and electromagnetic interference. All this has led to to believe that the ancient alien spacecraft lies beneath the dunes. A flying saucer isn't the only thing believed to be buried down there. Apparently, the area is also an ancient Native American burial ground. We all know the building, anything on one of those is generally a bad deal. An alien connection is only one hypothesis surrounding the area. Theories about the disappearances and the weird lights around lights abound. Is the area a portal to another dimension? Were the missing people transported or interrogated by the green lightning? Was this some kind of Native American magic meant to protect the tribal gold from greedy European explorers like Crondo? <laughs> as freaky and, and kind of cool as all this is, unfortunately, the only thing that exists in the way of real evidence in Crondo's diary. Every other claim over the last 500 years, or have been, shall we say, sketchy, still it seems that something happened. To those lost explorers, something unnatural and extremely difficult to explain. That's enough to keep me from exploring the dunes anytime soon. So, that's something I found from my research. So, uh, do you, you find any cool stories about the Goatman on your research? Mm-hmm. And you know what? The second legend is. Yeah. What is the second here? legend is, is 
a farmer went crazy and killed a bunch of teenagers because they figured out because he figured out that they killed his goats. And I just thought to myself when I read that one, I was like, that one seems more realistic, you know? Yeah. Because, you know, if the experiment would have backfired really hard enough, it probably would have killed a scientist. Oh, uh, I read one legend that um, a farmer had, like, had, like, goat children. And the goat man is a, his son or something. Oh. Yeah. That's... Funny. Or something. Um, do you ever play that, that one um game about the Wendigo? It's like a Mm-mm. Like Until Dawn, I think it's called. I don't It's pretty good. It's pretty scary. Do you like um play a lot of video games? No, I'm not really too much of like a video game person. Like I do play games on my phone sometimes, but I don't normally like play on like the console, Xbox, and all Fortnite and all that stuff. I don't nor- I don't do that. Okay. What kind of games do you play on your phone? Geometry Dash, stuff like that. Geometry Dash. That's fun. So, uh, what do you study? Hmm. Sometimes, yes, I, I I do study some legends some most of the times, but but other times I just read this. Make sure, see if I can. Oh. We're looking at Oh, uh. Yeah. We'll work here in a minute. Uh, Oklahoma family sees Bigfoot. Uh, a woman in Oklahoma says she and her family saw a bipedal creature in Cleveland County. Location of. A uh, woman refused to find out exact location of the alleged incident. Recently told that the Bigfoot Research Organization that they were driving a dirt road near the property when they spotted the creature early evening of the fall of 2013. She says, uh, we stopped at the mailbox and started talking to my husband. My oldest son started mumbling something, and when I looked back at him, he's pointing at something. I looked, and I didn't see anything at first. My husband was looking as well, but couldn't see anything to the woman. Suddenly, she adds, she spotted the creature. I couldn't speak. I was slapping my husband's arm and pointing at the thing. It was across the road on the other side of the creek. 
On the right, there were open pasture with cattle. It stood by the fence, she explained. Pearl and Emil then looked at the truck, and the woman, who was the driver at the time, took off. My son yelled to go back. I put the truck in reverse, but the thing was gone by then. I didn't appear to be scared of us. It was more of a uh-oh moment. When I turned towards our truck and saw us, it froze. I didn't move at all. I saw the truck. It was gone in seconds. When we rolled the windows down, it was creepy quiet. That one describes it as a huge, smoky black being without snout and a flat face with very long arms. It had a flat face with a round head, but a pronounced brow like a Cro-Magnon man. It was about eight to nine feet tall. Its waist is about the five feet fence. Dang. The woman added that she and her family know the local wildlife, and there wasn't a deer. There was a good area as well. Say uh, to ourselves out here, we don't talk about this to anyone, and this is the first time we have shared our story. My whole family saw this thing, so we have four people who now believe this thing is real. She said, "That's crazy. It's a big, it's a big creature." Oh, how tall are you? I'm like I'm like five ten, five nine. I'm I'm five ten. Five ten. Five ten is a weird how, how height. It's it like eight, uh, eight to nine feet tall. Yes. Five ten is like five ten is a weird height. It's like you're not tall really, but you're not you're you're, you're tall enough to get stuff from the like top. Of the shelf, kind of, but you know. Mm -hmm. One more story. Uh, we're telling humanoid turtles, Oklahoma dispatcher. The man, sixty four. 63-year-old Oklahoma City dispatcher, who actually remained anonymous, told Cryptozoology News he was driving to work in the early morning when he encountered the reported creature. I was driving east on Southwest 29th Street on 4.30 a.m. on a Saturday. There was a full moon. I usually don't work on Saturdays, but this Saturday we were having a driver's safety meeting, so I was on my way in. Taking my time and only doing 35 miles per hour, reported about the December 6, 2015 encounter. I was coming off a two-lane to a four-lane on my side. The bean jumped up on the side of the road, standing on the curb, looking at me. The dispatcher claims the humanoid stood there for about 60 seconds and provided cryptology news a detailed sketch described it as a three-foot-tall humanoid with lizard skin. His color, he said, it was a cream and iridescent. It had large eyes and small pointed ears. His eyes were were orange with no glow when the headlights hit them. It had a small mouth with a nose similar to a cat. It had three toes curled over the edges of the curb with heels like a human. Extremely large thighs that matched the base of his tail. It was extremely long, the huge base tapering. Calls. <laughs> Man added the creature was flicking its tail, standing like an angry cat. But once it was on the move, it carried it straight out behind him. He explains that the being seemed extremely intelligent and felt as though it was watching him and thinking. 
uh, as if it was cackling where it could make you know, a cross in front of me without getting hit. It made it to the center yellow line and looked at me again before sprinting off into the woods on the opposite side of the road. Dotwin has said that he had been traveling the same road for seven years and never encountered anything like it. The creature looks like something that belonged in the movie Avatar, something I would likely never forget, he said. And to a girl in Virginia, Yogi Bears, Yellowstone Park in Page County. She said that the animal looked like the mix of a horse and a Komodo dragon with dark gray brown color. In December 2014, a former Marine and his wife also reported seeing one in Cincinnati, Ohio. Some paranormal researchers believe in the existence of a race of snake-like underground creatures. Prone to reptilian theories such as David Icke suggests a conspiracy involving these humanoids taking over planet Earth. According to Icke, these creatures are particularly involved in daily political decisions affecting governments across the world, as they also believe that they are capable of a morphing or shape-shifting at will in order to deceive the population. I need to do an episode on that conspiracy theory. Oh, I need to go to work. Oh, shit. So tell me about... Where can we find you? What you do? Oh, what was that? You, you cut out a little bit there, buddy. Uh, so tell everyone about you, what you do, where they can find you. Well, you guys can all follow me on Logan's at on Instagram at Logan Swan nineteen, of course. Nothing going on. No, not really. There you go. I'll go on. I I have to go to work here a minute. Okay, I'm okay thank with you. that. Uh, thank you oh, for. Thank you for coming on. Appreciate you. Anytime, man. Okay. I'm going. And I will catch you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Monster Legend Podcast. Or to find more information about Monster Legend Podcast, go to monsterlegendpodcast.com or anchor.fm forward slash monsterlegendpodcast. There you can find all episodes and platforms on which the podcast is on which you can describe subscribe to you also can email me all the questions that will be answered on the show thank you swimsuit check sunscreen check phone charger check don't forget to pack the five hour energy it fits great in a pocket or carry-on and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything now get 20 percent off when you use code 5he travel at 5hourenergy.com expires april 30th one time use only not valid with other discounts remember visit 5hourenergy.com and use code 5he travel to save 20 percent